Saul's rebellion against the Lord and his clear commandment to destroy Amalek is now exposed, identifying Saul as a capital offender. This is the 30th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel and chapter 15, the first 27 verses, the first 27 verses, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning by the scriptures and by the inspiration of the Lord Jesus Christ. So does Samuel record this unto us. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, oxen, sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tell him 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to his city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah unto thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all that night. When Samuel arose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, And I will tell thee what the Lord had said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they be consumed? Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, 
and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen and the cheap of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. The Apostle James writing to us in his first chapter, James in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13 through verse 15. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of our God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now Saul's folly begins its destructive progression downward as he sinks deeper and deeper into sin. And this is the nature of sin. Sin is progressive. Notice what James is saying. Firstly, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God does not tempt men with evil. Neither can he tempt any man. But every man, and this is what's so important here, Saul needed to take ownership of his sin because he was the one not the people as he claimed the people made me do it sounded like a little bit like when Aaron said well the people made me make the golden calf no it was Saul's sin and Saul's sins only so he's saying here James is saying here when lust hath conceived because every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and when that's conceived it brings forth sin sin brings forth death And that is your total destruction. So this is Saul's progression. As he was failing over and over and over to obey the voice of the Lord, he was going deeper and deeper into sin and his own destruction. The lesson is very simple. Saul was tempted by his own evil heart, which was contrary to the will of God, the law of God, and the love of Christ. And as we shall see in the case of Saul, and as we've been seeing in the case of Saul, all sin is destructive both to the perpetrator of sin and those who become the collateral damage by sin. And we will see that all of Israel will now suffer because of Saul's sin. Saul was now on a pathway of total destruction and there was no turning back. Now, by this time, Saul's insatiable lust and hunger for power was evident. 
He wanted to be as God. He thought he knew better than God. God said this. He thought that. He did what he thought was right, even though God said the contrary. So by this time, his insatiable hunger for power was evident. But even though Saul's tyrannical power quest had run away with his senses, God used him, even at this point, to destroy the enemy of Israel, Agag and the Amalekites. And so Samuel confronts Saul with a commission from the Lord. He tells him very clearly what God wants. No hedging, no parables were spoken, no proverbs were given that was in need of interpretation. It was very clear. But before he states the will of God for Saul, Samuel would remind Saul as to his position as king and servant of the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 1. The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel, and now therefore, notice what he's going to say. Listen thou, you, listen. It's the word hearken thou, which means you listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. Listen to his voice and take heed to his words. That is what he's telling him. He's telling him very clearly, you listen and take heed to the words of the Lord. Now, it's painfully obvious that the Lord required for Saul to be obedient. He requires obedience from his people, especially those in authority. But why remind Saul at this juncture that he was to be extremely careful as to listening to the voice of the words of the Lord? Considering Saul's consistency of disobedience and the pattern of self-justification, and of course, his tyrannical pride, as well as what Samuel spoke of the prophecy concerning what Saul would finally become. He is reminding, the prophet Samuel is reminding Saul of what he is to do. Because Samuel had a track record of disobedience. It's sort of be like your child has a track record of disobedience, so you sit him down once and for all and say, now you listen here. You've been disobedient over and over. I'm going to tell you exactly, very clearly what you need to do. And that's what Saul is hearing from the prophet Samuel. And the lesson is, of course, very simple. The prophets of God, pastors as well as those in the congregation who act as prophets of God, are to remind all those in authority, especially civil magistrates, of their requirement, because that's what Samuel is doing. He, acting as a voice piece for God, That's what the church is. He is reminding the civil magistrate Saul as to his requirement to obey God in his legislative and executive acts. That is the task of the church. Now, knowing the tendency of Saul's disobedience and the depth of his pride, which is the reason for this constant self-justification of Saul rather than an immediate asking for forgiveness and repentance is immediate humiliation and repentance before God, God tests Saul once again. And this is a test. Finally, we're going to see if Saul is going to listen. So notice what Samuel says. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. So now what Samuel is doing is reminding Saul of his own history that the Amalekites, Amalek in particular, was so wickedly destructive toward the people of God that now is the time for God to act as a vindication of his people. So he tells him this, verse 3, Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy, it's very clear, utterly destroy all that they have, spare them not. Here's the rub. 
slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. This was a terrible commandment. It was a horrible thing to ask a man to do. Since even the women and children were to be slain along with the army. They were, they seemed to be at least innocent bystanders. They would be looked at as collateral damage. And yet God, the righteous God, the holy God, the merciful God, is telling Saul to do such an incredibly horrible thing. At least from our vantage point, this is an incredibly horrible thing. Now consider first, God reminds Saul of the great evil, and this is key to the reason for the commandment, of the great evil which Amalek did to the children of Israel while they were very vulnerable in the wilderness sojourn. So why does God single out Amalek? And why does he want a total annihilation of his entire tribe? Well, there's an old saying, you cut off the head of the serpent and the entire body dies. So cut off the head of the snake and the entire body dies, kill Amalek and the entire Amalekite army would be destroyed. And this is why during the empire-wide purging of the Christians by Diocletian, the pastors were targeted before the congregate members. You get rid of the pastor and the sheep will scatter. Just like you get rid of Christ, then they thought that the sheep would scatter. The theory was destroy the leadership and the entire movement would unravel. The problem with Diocletian, the Roman wicked man, Diocletian's theory was, was that he was targeting the wrong leader. He was targeting men. He was targeting pastors. The leader of the Christian movement was not so much the pastor. The leader of the Christian movement, the courage of its unity and strength, was not so much to be found in any man, but rather in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so by killing off the visible leadership of the church... Diocletian was only fueling the cause of Christendom because then another one would rise up. Every time a pastor was martyred, another leader would rise up and even more courageous. And during the time of this great tribulation, during the destruction of the Christian church, those pastors who were bold and vocal against the evil of the tyrant knew that they had to be very mindful to train others to fill the void if and when there was silence, captured or killed. That is the burden of ministers. True ministers seek to train up a literate clergy. They understand the value of training these people to become lions for the cause of Christ and the advancement of His kingdom, who would portray and practice not only theological knowledge, but pastoral care of the flock of Jesus Christ. Now what these men were not looking for What these pastors were not looking for when they trained up these men, they were actually not looking for polished theologians. Oh, they needed to understand the scriptures, they needed to be able to expound the scriptures, they needed to understand theology, but they were not looking for ivory tower theologians. That was not part of the equation. But rather, they were looking for men who actually cared for and desire to sacrificially minister to the people of God who would put themselves in harm's way for the protection of the people of God and who would show forth courage in the face of threatenings. They wanted pastors. We're looking for pastors. We're looking for men like the prophet Micah who saw the destruction of his people and he wailed and mourned because of it, because he cared. We're looking for people who care. And people who care, they're very easily trained. You don't have to whip them into desiring to serve the risen Christ and the people of God. 
So the question today is where will these men be found? Consider then why is there such a dearth of capable men to continue the legacy of Christendom as pastors? Well, the answer is quite simple. Self-serving worldliness and living in the present without consideration for the future of the kingdom of God. That's the problem. You see, we live in a me-centered world and it has infiltrated the church in a big way, even the Reformed Church. And I believe that this trend does not reverse itself. The church will go into one of its darkest days since the time of Diocletian and the Roman Empire. Now, in the case of Amalek, that, in fact, was the head of the snake. And so to destroy all that was in Amalek was to destroy his murderous influence against Christ's church. Remember what God is concerned about. God is concerned about the safety of his children. And the Amalekites were very destructive toward the people of God. God identifies the position of Amalek in Balaam's prophecy in Numbers chapter 24. Notice verse 20. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perishes forever. Now the phrase first of the nations indicates that Amalek was the chiefest of the nations. He was the first principal among the enemies of God. He was one of the strongest, most vicious, most violent people. And that tribe was one of the most violent and vicious tribes known on the face of the earth at that time. He was the head of the snake. Destroy him, destroy his posterity, destroy the Amalekites, and you kick out the legs from all of the nations that would dare to come against Israel for fear of being destroyed like Amalek and the Amalekites. Destroy the strongest and all others with fear. And that was the principle that was to be universal. You know, when we were kids, when we were children, there was always some boy on the block that was seen as the toughest kid. He was the toughest kid on the block. And everyone was afraid of him. What we didn't know was that most of the fear was due to hype. It was a myth. It was a legend. The, the, the boy never fought. He was big. Maybe he was bigger than the other boys. And, and yet we all thought he was the toughest kid on the block. And it wasn't until that kid was actually challenged and then defeated by another kid that we knew that he actually wasn't the toughest kid on the block. He just appeared to be the toughest kid on the block. The toughest kid on the block was actually the one who beat him. After that, no one wanted to mess with the new kid that beat the so-called tough kid. You see, God wanted Israel to be the toughest kid on the block. God wanted Saul to challenge the toughest kid on the block and to defeat him entirely by destroying everything that he had. Nothing was to be left alive. And that is how wicked that nation was. So we have to recognize that the only reason why God is saying destroy everything was because of the nature of the depth of their wickedness. If any of that nation was left on the face of the earth, the children, one day that remnant, the generations of Amalek, would rise up and seek to destroy God's people. And that is what Saul had to understand, and that is why God told him to kill everybody, including the livestock of that nation. Since even the livestock, because of the violence and the wickedness of the Amalekites, it seems that even the livestock was not worthy to sacrifice because even the livestock was cursed. And that's what we have to understand when God says, kill them all. 
He's not being vindictive. He's not being vicious. He's being righteous. Utterly destroy all that they have because that's how wicked these people are. Spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. R.J. Rushton, he shed some light upon why God's judgment against Amalek was so wrathful. Notice what he says. Quote, first, Amalek was at war against God. The psalmist later cites Amalek as one of the conspiring nations in Psalm 83, 5 and 7. In Psalm 83, 5 through 7, we read this. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarzines, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. In 1 Samuel 28.18, reference is made to God's fierce anger and wrath upon Amalek. Second, God was also at war against Amalek. Third, Israel had been attacked by Amalek and had been savagely treated. Fourth, Israel was required to wage war unto the death against Amalek. Fifth, this war was to continue from generation to generation and the remembrance of Amalek was to be blotted out, end quote. Amalek had in fact, not only was he wicked, not only was he violent, but he had in fact lifted his hand toward God in defiance and sought to usurp the throne of heaven. And would God stand for this? You see, we don't really know who God is when we think that he would tolerate such wickedness. And this was the same sin that Adam, who by his rebellion to be as God, plunged the entire world into a sin-cursed graveyard spiral downward under the wrath of God. Amalek is doing the same thing. He's usurping the throne of God. And this was unpardonable. When the Amalekites led by Amalek attacked the Hebrews in the wilderness, the scripture says that they cut off the hindmost of the stragglers. The hindmost parts of the stragglers. Deuteronomy 25 puts it this way. Moses is telling the children of Israel, setting the stage for how they're to respond to the Amalekites. He says, remember what Amalek did. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way. When ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou was faint and weary, and he feared not God. Now the word hindmost seems to be a reference not so much as to those that lag behind even though those did lag behind, they were taken and destroyed. But this word hindmost is actually a reference to castration. Rushduni again comments, he says, the verb form cut off the tail or hindmost can also mean to castrate. Now, traditional Midrach legend, that is the Hebrew tradition, explains how the Amalekites made themselves particularly hateful by cutting off the circumcised private parts of the Israelites and then taking the corpses after killing them and taking those private parts, spreading them out into the desert and throwing behind this part, that circumcised part, into the air and shouting obscene curses to Yahweh. And if you could think about such a horrible thing, they meet the Israelites and they castrate them, they take their bodies and they throw them onto the dirt and they take those pieces and throw them into the air and say this and that. 
against God himself. Now this makes perfect sense since Amalek may have desired by doing this to cut off any further generation from the Hebrews. This is genocide. That is what the wicked do. They destroy the children, they destroy the family. Their mantra, destroy the next generation and we can be as God dictating good and evil according to our own whim and according to our own will. And we see this historically in Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, China, and every other God-hating, tyrannical regime that seeks to be as God. And now we're even seeing it in America. And the strategy is simple. Destroy the next generation and you can have complete control. And this is done in so many ways, not just through murder and genocide. The American schooling system destroys through reindoctrination, not to mention the genocide of babies in the womb. The media of our day is also a culprit, reinventing good and evil. It seeks to indoctrinate the masses with taxes, with tactics of misinformation, pseudoscience, and fear. And this is destroying the next generation. Look at what the movies and the musical entertainers are doing. They're the prophets of the new age. They have a part in the re-education and manipulation of the masses as well. They want to destroy your children. They want to destroy the next generation. And we just go happily by, we, we clock in, we clock out of church. Maybe we'll get a devotion in, maybe we'll deal with our children, maybe we'll monitor what they're watching on TV, if you even have a TV, which I do not recommend. But anyway, you're at least monitoring it. They're looking for you. They're looking to destroy you. To be sure, the end result is genocide especially to those who refuse to be re-educated. If you refuse to be re-educated or to have your children be indoctrinated, you have to go. The Christians are targeted. And this is why God told Saul to utterly destroy Amalek, since Amalek seeks to utterly destroy God and his church. You know, we think about Christianity, and we look at all the, the language of the Bibles of the Old Testament, and then we understand that Christianity is a, is a battle. It's a battle against good and evil. God and the anti-God. God, however, desires for Saul to render destruction to Amalek and his posterity. Rushduni again gives us insight. He says, God was at war with Amalek, and this warfare is to be continued from generation to generation. Israel's war against him is likely to continue until Amalek and its remembrance is blotted out. And Amalek, as an empire, is totally indeed forgotten. But God's word is from generation to generation. Now, of course, the weapons of our warfare are no longer carnal. They're not military. They're philosophical. They're theological. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But it is no less a battle. It is no less a battle. Now, to the sympathetic individual, this commandment by God seems like overkill. And this is why so many are so quick to distinguish between the God of the Old Testament, he's, he's the angry God. Oh, he's the bloody God. We don't want a bloody God. They're so quick to distinguish between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New. We like, we like the Jesus of the New. Can you give us more Jesus and less God? Can you give us more the shepherd of Israel rather than the man of war, God himself? The God of the old is so vengeful. Well, the God of the new is, he's just, 
It's just so loving. I really can, I can really, I can relate to that loving God. I can relate to that shepherd of Israel. I can't relate so much to the God of war. And that is because we do not understand the holiness of God. And so we, of the apostate, emotionally charged, worldly, modern church, fearful of offending anyone, will only preach about the God of the New Testament. And then you have churches that say, well, we're we're a New Testament church. Well, that's not a church at all. That's half of a church. Because the Bible is one cohesive whole. And Jesus is the same today as he was then and will forever be. And yet, it is the God of the new that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the same God that spoke hellfire and wrath over and over. What did Jesus speak about? Hell and wrath and, and, and the burning of the fire. What we have to understand is that God will have no other gods before him. And when men seek to be as God, as Amalek did, he rewards them with the same wrath that they sought to bring upon God and his people. And so all God is doing is rewarding them according to their own desires. Because God's sentence here against Amalek and the Amalekites was just. That sentence of total annihilation was absolutely righteous. They want to kill all of God's people. God says, I will take recompense. I will kill all of their people. And it's called lex talionis. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is the key. He says, as he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. That is righteous. Notice what Moses warns. Deuteronomy 19.21 And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Saul was not to pity these people. You see, God understands what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Saul's commission was clear. Destroy all of Amalek so that there would be no longer any remembrance of him forever. So what did Saul do? So what did he do? Clear clear commandment. What did he do? He did what he wanted to do. He disobeys. So Saul gathers all the people together and numbers them. And he smites the Amalekites from... Havilah unto the area of Shur, but they spare Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatlings of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refused, that they destroyed utterly. It seems to me that even the children were spared. Maybe even the women were spared. The seeds of a new generation of wickedness, the seeds of a new generation of genocide. And what Saul did was abject rebellion. Saul sees the sheep, the oxen, the lamb. He said, oh, this is really great. We can, we can, we can uh, give them to God. Maybe we'll do this religious thing. And he justifies his actions in the most blasphemous way by saying he's going to do this for God. And this was Saul's test. And he failed miserably. Upon Saul's rebellion, God speaks to Samuel. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and have not performed my commandments. Now, this statement where the Lord says, It repented me that I have set up Saul to be king should be taken very seriously since the last time God said that, when the last time he repented of a thing, 
He flooded the earth and killed every living creature save a remnant of the animal kingdom and eight righteous souls. And the Lord God said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. God's statement was obviously understood for its fullest intent since it caused Samuel enormous grief, setting him on his bed all night and weeping. He was weeping. Why? Because he cared. And it grieved Samuel and he cried unto the Lord all night. But why? Why was he so upset? Well, surely he did care. For one thing, perhaps he even hoped that Saul would turn and become the righteous king that he should be. Maybe he would be the deliverer of of Israel, despite what God had told him might happen or would happen. Despite the warnings that, that he told Israel would happen if Saul became king. Moreover, Samuel now knew that all of those things which he warned Israel about was about to happen. This was going to be terrible. When they anointed him king, when they anointed him king, Samuel told them what would happen and now he knew this is now really going to happen. He fails this test and now God is going to take the kingdom from him. Tyranny would now break forth out upon the entire nation of Israel. It would break forth upon the priests and the people and Saul would go deeper and deeper into sin. He would become the adversary of both God and the people which he had promised to protect and serve. Everything that he was called to do, he is now going to do the opposite. And that's what magistrates do when they fail to obey God. Instead of protecting the people, they begin to destroy the people. Observe Saul's delusion and prideful self-justification. And when Samuel, this is verse 12 and 13, and when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to call him, and behold, he set up a place, and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. And notice this. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Blind ambition. Blind as to the clear commandment of God. Note, he greets Samuel happily. Blessed be thou of the Lord. Hey, good to see you. Notice, I've done everything God has told me. I've done a great thing. I have obeyed the Lord in fulfilling His commission. And this was delusional. Because men of wickedness, men who have been overtaken by sin, become delusional that they're doing the right thing. He thought that partial obedience was full obedience. But partial obedience is not obedience. He had not obeyed, and yet he posits himself as an obedient servant. Now, Samuel, of course, hearing the bleeding of the sheep and the noise of the oxen, he confronts Saul as to his obvious disobedience. And Samuel said, What mean it then? If you've been so obedient, how come I hear sheep? How come I hear oxen? If you were so obedient, why do I see that you have not been obedient? Because I hear all of these animals. Note Saul's self-justification. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared, notice the people, not me, I'm the king, I'm supposed to be calling the shots, but the people got to blame somebody. The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord. You see, this was a, a good thing. The people were really religious. They were very holy people. They spared because God needed them. 
We're going to sacrifice these things to the Lord, even though God said kill them all. Because I know better than God. I know better than the word of the Lord. I'm going to give them as a sacrifice to the Lord thy God. But, you know, the rest we, we destroyed. So Saul simply did whatever he wanted to do. And then he said that he did it to please God. Saul acted on his own sinful reasoning rather than the explicit revelation of God's word. And then, to add insult to injury, he tried to convince Samuel and God that he did it for a good reason. This was a good reason. I disobeyed. It was a good reason. The circumstances dictated that I could disobey. And I did it for the right reason. My, you know, my heart was right. My motives were pure. You violated the clear revelation of God. Hearing this, Samuel relates, once again, God's judgment. Now, what is interesting about verse 16 is that it seems as if Saul, after he told Samuel that we're going to sacrifice to the Lord, I got the best of the sheep, it seems as if he was waiting for some sort of commendation from God for his sacrifice. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. So, maybe anticipating that, oh, I'm going to get some some real praise from Samuel and God because I was very wise. I kept the best of the sheep. I kept the best of the oxen. I kept everything that I thought God really needed. And now I'm waiting for my commendation. I mean, isn't that just like a proud man? Sins against God and waits God to bless him for it. So Saul says, say on. In other words, I'm ready. Come on, give it to me. So in his heart, in the pride of his heart, Samuel was going to tell him what God had said and Saul, in the pride of his heart, was saying, oh goody, God is going to reward me for this great thing. But that is exactly what God didn't do. What Saul hears is not what he hoped for. Samuel begins by reminding Saul of his nothingness before he became king, as if to say, now the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. And Samuel said, when thou was little in thine own sight, was thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now upon hearing this, Saul insists on his obedience and shifts the blame on the people. Yea, I have obeyed. Notice what he says. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone the way in which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. I was obedient, but the people weren't. The people took of the spoil. The people took of the sheep. The people took of the oxen, the chief of all the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord God in Gilgal. Now if you remember, Saul's commands were well received by the people of God, by the army, and readily obeyed. Remember, he said, don't eat. Even though you're famished, stop, don't eat. I'm the king. You do what I say. And the people feared Saul. And they did what he said. And they didn't eat, even though they should have eaten. So he can't blame the people because he's the head. 
if he had given the commandment not to take anything, but rather to destroy, the people would have obeyed him. But he didn't tell them that. It's obvious. He never told them that. Especially in light of they just recently obeyed the mandate not to eat of the, of the honey. Would they not have obeyed this commandment against the Amalekites? You see, Samuel is not going to be fooled. He's going to have none of that. So was guilty, and it's as simple as that. Samuel then gives two of his most famous remarks. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than any sacrifice you can possibly give. My commentary. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Samuel's first statement. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to God's word than the fat of lambs. Jesus explains that those who love him will keep his commandments. Notice John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And this is true in the negative as well. In other words, those that do not love him will not keep his commandments, and those that do not keep his commandments do not love him. John adds this. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Moses tells the children of Israel that the first and greatest of all the commandments is to love God. Notice Deuteronomy 11.1 1, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. And Christ confirms this in Mark 12.30 And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Now of course you don't keep the commandments to get right with God. You keep the commandments because you are already right with God by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, the mediator. That needs to be spelled out. Our works merit nothing. But once we're the children of God, once we've been redeemed, once we have the new birth, once we've been regenerated, and our hearts are changed and our minds are changed, we want to do God's will. And so it's obvious that Saul didn't love God because he didn't want to keep his commandments. And that was the first and most important, the chiefest of all commandments. And it is this commandment that undergirds all other commandments and it remains the foundation of our relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ to love God. Now since Saul did not obey God, it follows of course that he did not love God. He loved himself. He thought he knew better than God. Saul thought that the sacrifice of things could replace the sacrifice of his heart and the sacrifice of his will and the sacrifice of his intentions to God. But God wants the sacrifice of the whole individual. Paul explains. Romans 12.1 And notice he begs. Notice how Paul begs. I beseech you therefore. I beg you brethren. Therefore, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice your entire being as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Nothing special. It's reasonable. It's not unreasonable. Some people say, well, that's a little steep for me to really swallow. 
my whole life. That's unreasonable. No, it's reasonable. Such says the word. Saul, you see, was unwilling to sacrifice his will to the will of God, so he foolishly replaces it with the blood of bulls and goats. In other words, he replaces it with religious observances instead of ethical obedience. Let me give that again. He replaces his walk with God with religious ritual rather than with ethical obedience. The only time outward forms of sacrifices are acceptable is when they are done with the proper motive of the heart and will subjected and obedient to God's word. And so we must say with the Lord Jesus Christ, not my will, but thy be done. The sacrifice of a man's will is of the highest value and can never compare nor take place of outward sacrifices or rituals. The Reverend Baxendale explains further, he says, Obedience is the giving up of the will to the will of another. It is therefore the sacrifice of the whole man. When a man has given himself thus to God, he has offered to him all that he has to offer, all his powers of soul and body, as well as all of his material possessions. Many men would spurn a gift which was not an outcome of inward feeling. And yet God's creatures sometimes act as if they thought their maker could be bribed by such an offering. Consider Samuel's second statement. It is also very famous, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. God likens disobedience as the sin of witchcraft, which was punishable by death. In ancient Israel, witchcraft and divination was a capital offense. It was a capital crime. Samuel identifies Saul's rebellion and stubbornness and associates them with iniquity and idolatry. And this is a pivotal point for the reader since we are now being made aware of the inward workings of Saul. His sin at this point in the narrative is fully exposed as what it was. Up until this point, we can only assume as to the depth of his apostasy, but now it's spelled out plainly before us, Saul is guilty of capital crimes. He is worthy of death. Not because he killed the Amalekites, or he failed to kill the Amalekites, it was because he's rebelling over and over and over. He rebelled against God. He's not being charged for killing the women and the children, or the army. He's charged because he rebelled against God. He is a rebellious and stubborn idolater, and his idol was himself, of course, who has been placed in the company of witches and soothsayers and identified as such by none other than God himself. So finally, the depth of Saul's sin is exposed. Samuel then lays the hammer down and reveals to Saul the consequences of his action. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. That was the coup de grace. You are no longer king. And as Samuel turns to leave Saul, to his reproach, Saul takes hold of Samuel's garment in order to restrain him, to perhaps talk him into giving him a blessing rather than a curse. And as he takes hold of Samuel's garment, he tears it. And as Samuel turned to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and it rent. We will consider that next when we return to our exposition of the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.